Would you please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? This week we'll be reading verses 17 and following through to verse 24. 1 Corinthians 1, 17 through 24. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, in this letter to the Corinthians in Corinth, the Apostle Paul is rebuking the church for her division. She has factions and parties in strife with each other, and he's working to put a stop to it. And they have gathered around leaders. They, some of them say, I'm of Cephas, which is the Apostle Peter. Some, I'm of Paul. Some, of Apollos. Some, we're with Jesus. And Paul is trying to keep them from lining up behind him and behind others. And so, in a very humble and meek way, instead of focusing on Apollos, he focuses on himself. And he says, so what about me? Am I the one that was crucified for you? And the answer is no. He says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? And the answer is no. They were baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. And they did this because it was Christ who was crucified for them and not the Apostle Paul. And so he's showing how insignificant he is in their lives, sort of. And one of the ways he does this is by going into the issue of baptism and saying, I didn't baptize you. Well, I have baptized a few of you, but, but hardly any of you, really. And from that, he then moves into the statement that we begin our text with this morning, which is, for Christ didn't send me to baptize. So in other words, this is why I didn't baptize hardly any of you, I wasn't sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech. And so if you look at the text, you see that with verse 17, we have a consistent lifting up of preaching of the word all through the text. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but what? To preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, And then the word of the cross, again, preaching, it's not an action, but it's the word of the cross, all right? And then we skip down to verse 21, where he says, God was well pleased through what? Again, the foolishness of the message preached. So preaching, word, preaching. And then verse 23, not signs, not wisdom, but preaching. And preaching, Christ crucified. And so what's going on here is that baptism is being relegated. You all know what relegation is from sports, right? Baptism is being relegated. I want to read again from Hodge on this. He says, during the apostolic age, in other words, the time of the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John, during the apostolic age and in the apostolic form of religion, truth stood immeasurably above external rights. The apostasy of the church, that's not good. That means where the church has gone bad, all right? The apostasy of the church consisted in making rights more important than truth. So the religion of the New Testament and of the apostles is that truth is immeasurably above rights. But ever since then, it's that the rights flip-flop 
and the truth is relegated. But the biblical way is that the rights are relegated underneath the truth, underneath preaching and underneath faith. The apostasy of the church consists in making rights more important than truth. And then he says this, the apostle's manner of speaking of baptism in this connection, in this text, the way he talks about baptism as subordinate to preaching is therefore a wonder to those who are disposed unduly to exalt the sacraments. In other words, those who want to make a big deal out of the rites and put preaching under them to relegate preaching come to the text here and they go, doesn't compute. It makes no sense. Preaching and the sacraments, the minister of the word of the sacrament, they should at least be on a level, and sometimes I think that the sacraments should be above because evangelists don't believe in the sacraments, and I'm a minister of the word. And so what we begin to do is we begin to work to lift the sacraments up because we see how people don't believe in the sacraments. And pretty soon, you know, you always fall off one side or the other. Pretty soon we're doing what's always been done since the apostolic age, which is that the sacraments are lifted up on top. And so all of you have friends who have gone into the Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church, Right? Why have they done it again and again and again? The reason they've done it is because they want to go somewhere, as one of the men of this church said to us when he left for Lutheranism, I want to go somewhere where the sacraments actually do something. And that's always our habit. We want to be able to grab on to something physical and feel that as we grab on to the thing that's physical, we can, now none of them would ever put it this way, but we can control God. All right? Now, let's talk a little bit then about the sacraments. Because when he talks about Christ not sending him to, to baptize but to preach, what he's saying is, I wasn't sent to do the sacraments, I was sent to preach the gospel, to preach the cross. And I want to spend some time talking about the sacraments. It wasn't really until I moved to Bloomington and began to see that in my church there were many people taking the Lord's Supper who had never been baptized, and I began to really think about the sacraments. And I realized that it is not right for us to neglect the initiation rite of the church and come to the family table. That before you come to the Lord's Supper, you need to have been marked with the covenant sign of baptism, right? In the Old Testament, those who were marked with the covenant sign of circumcision were allowed to come to the Passover meal. In the New Testament, those marked by the covenant sign of baptism are allowed to come to the Lord's Supper. You see this parallelism, right? Something is driving me crazy. And it wasn't until I began to think about this and I began to say to people, no, you need to have been baptized before you come to the Lord's table. Well, then the next thing I realized is that people thought they could be baptized into, uh, you know... um, the church invisible, and that they didn't need to take any vows to submit to elders to get into the church invisible, that elders and submission were an option. The important thing was that you were baptized and belonged to Jesus. And you could just hop, skip, and jump right over top of the church. Hop, skip, and a jump right over the top of submission to elders, right? Even though the Bible says, submit to those in authority over you, the Lord, because they keep watch for your soul as men who must give an account. doesn't matter. Skip right over it because we all know that authority is bad in America today. So first I see a bunch of people coming to the Lord's Supper, never been baptized. No, no, that's wrong. So then you go to them and say, you need to be baptized. And then they say, well, I'm okay with being baptized, but I'm not going to submit to any elders. And then I'm thinking, wait a second. And then I begin to think about the sacraments And if I tell them that they have to be baptized before they come to the Lord's table, and if I tell them that they can't be baptized into the church invisible, they have to be baptized into a particular church and take vows as a part of baptism that they will submit to the church, both things immediately divide. Because people don't want to be told what to do. Right? Nobody wants to be told what to do. And so I think, well, you know, What's important is that we all love Jesus, (laughs) right? And I really ought not to put up obstacles in front of people. And I am kind of big and loud. 
And so if I do put up obstacles in front of people, everybody will think it's about me. I want everybody to submit to me. And really it would be so much more contextualized to a rebellious culture. It's Gnostic. <laughs> if I would just forget all that junk and just tell people, each man do what is right in his own eyes. All right? Because I don't want anybody to think it's about me. And I don't want anybody to think that in order to come to Jesus, they have to submit to elders. And I don't want anybody to think that they're not welcome at the Lord's table if they haven't been baptized. And so, you know, as a pastor, you go back and forth and back and forth in your mind, right? On the one hand, you know, that scene in Fiddler on the Roof. But on the other hand, tradition. On the one hand, but on the other hand, and listen, what you don't want is you don't want a pastor who's having internal debates devoid of submission to Scripture. You just don't want that. You want to have a sense that there's some sort of external, objective, authoritative standard that your pastor is obedient to. Right? Right? So then you go to Scripture and you begin to think about the sacraments biblically. Biblically. All right. And instead of spending all your time trying to contextualize and being real smart. Because, boy, contextualization can tie you up in knots pretty quickly. You know, once we start deciding what's helpful to God. So that he's not misunderstood. You understand, then all kinds of words have to come out of Scripture. You know, the word man to refer to a mixed sex group. And, you know, the thing about the men in Sodom raping men. And the thing about all Cretans are liars. And this testimony is true. You know, in other words, once we start taking out of Scripture things that go against our cultural sensibilities, there really is no end. You know, that bit about synagogues of Satan, that sounds anti-Semitic, and we live in the post-Holocaust world, you know? And that thing about the Jews cried out. And so what you'll see is over the last 50 years, there's been a huge, huge number of words that are in the Greek text of Scripture that evangelical Bible scholars and publishers have pulled out because they want to contextualize. All right? And what I've always said to them when I've talked to them in my, my mother-in-law's kitchen <laughs> is, listen, if we're really going to clean up Scripture, what we need to do is start with the word repent. You know, I, if it's all about contextualizing in such a way that we don't offend anybody, let's start with repent. Because isn't that like the really offensive word, you know? Unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And then as soon as we get done with repentance, let's move to the cross. If any man would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Let's start with repentance, then let's move to the cross. And then that thing about losing his life for my sake. I mean, why screw around with the word man and brother? You know, I nominate repent and cross and deny himself. You know, why mess with, you know, the deck chairs? We got a gash in the hall <laughs> of the Titanic. Repent. That's not a contextualize. I mean, when has Barack Obama, our president, ever used the word repent in a State of the Union address? You know, it's not part of the lingua franca, you know, right? You understand what I'm saying, everybody, children, everybody, you all understand what I'm saying. Once we begin to try to contextualize in such a way that everybody can't possibly misunderstand us, we have to take the entire offense of the cross out, throw it away, and come up with a whole new religion because everything about God is offensive to sinful man. Everything about him. From the very beginning where he commanded absolute obedience and said, if we did not obey, we would surely die. 
okay? The whole way to the end where he says, anybody that takes any of the words of these sacred scriptures out or adds to them. From the very beginning of scripture, the very end, it is offensive to you if you are a completely integrated person. In other words, if you're self-aware. In other words, if you're self-critical. In other words, if you have any ability to see your heart, you know that the Bible stinks to high heaven. I mean, it really does. Can I remind you? Unless you repent, you shall always perish. If any man would come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself and take up his cross. For if a man will save his life, he'll lose it. But if he'll lose his life for my sake, he'll find it. Okay, there we have it. Is that offensive to you? And if it's not to you, how about your children? Do you really want God to require your children to have to die? How about the part about a woman will be saved through childbearing? Whatever that means. In other words, people, the Bible's offensive. And so if we're going to move from Scripture into the church, and if we're going to begin to tell people that it doesn't matter as long as their heart's in the right place, they can come to the Lord's Supper, and it doesn't matter whether or not they've been baptized. And it really doesn't matter for baptism that they say that they'll submit to those in authority over them because what you want is people with hearts in the right place. And God isn't concerned about flesh. He's just concerned about spirit. And somehow, him being concerned about spirit means that in this little matter of submission to authority, I don't have to deny myself. (laughs) Come on, guys. Laugh. I'm not being obnoxious. I just think, come on, you've got to. You've got to admit this is us. (laughs) I'm as squirrely as they get. And if you ever get mad because I'm being sarcastic, listen, it's always me that I'm talking about. You don't get that. It's always me. I'm preaching to myself, okay? Maybe if I face like this, everything will be okay. (laughs) All right? Then you won't take it so personally. And so the sacraments come along, and boy, we just don't like the first thing that the sacraments are intended to do, which is to divide. And everybody in the world is separated into those who are marked by the signs of the sacraments physically and those who reject them. That's it. And, you know, you wouldn't really mind having yourself make the decision whether or not to be marked. But when I come in between you and the sacraments, I say, you're not going to be marked by the Lord's Supper because you haven't been marked by the sign of of baptism. You go... You know what? I think that man's a Judaizer. You know, I think that man, I think it's all about him. I think that that man is on an ego. I think he's arrogant. Well, yes, I am. But so what? (laughs) You think you're not? If you reject the authority of the church, should what? Should I attribute this to what? To your humility? (laughs) To your meekness? (laughs) To you being fully integrated? Why would you reject baptism when Jesus says, come? Why would you do that? Why would you reject submitting to elders when Jesus says, submit to those in authority over you in the Lord, for they keep watch over your soul as men who must give an account? Why would you do that? See, it's not really about me at all, and it's not about the elders here. It really is about faith. You really have no faith that obedience is the path to the blessing of God coming to you. Those of you who are women and think that the one little thing we must get rid of is submission as a sex, not simply as wives, but as a sex, acknowledging Eve was made for Adam. You think that's the little tweak you want, right? You really don't believe that God has blessings for you through that little thing you want to change. Men, Scripture says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Scripture says that amongst you there must not be a hint of sexual immorality. And so we think, well, you know, I can't trust God to give me joy 
I'm going to have to take a little myself. You just, just that little thing that you think that you can't trust God with. Those of us who are gluttons. The Bible says, whose gods are their bellies. Okay? Well, we can't trust God with how we feel before we go to bed. Just give that little thing to myself, that little thing I live my life for every day, that little bit of ice cream at the end of the day. And you say, you know, Tim, here you go. You're adding to Scripture. The Scripture says we're saved by grace through faith. And this not of yourself, not by works, lest any man should boast. Well, if you haven't noticed, I'm not exactly boasting. I'm confessing our sins to all of us. And I'm saying, look, once you begin to say to God that you know better than he does, whether you're in a position of authority or position of submission, once you decide that you're going to take this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing and that you need to be precious with yourself and remove that from faith and have it be a matter of you protecting yourself from God, you're on your own. The sacraments divide. The sacraments divide. And the nasty thing about the sacraments is that they're visible distinctions. When we talk to each other about what's in our heart towards Jesus, oh man, the possibilities for lies are endless. I mean, my heart this and my heart that. I see a spouse here laughing who... I know why that spouse is laughing. Because that spouse listened to that other spouse for years. Talk about that spouse's heart. Oh boy, that spouse had it down talking about that spouse's heart. Now this is gender, gender neutered language. Um, You know, the elders have sat in meetings scores and scores of time with one individual who constantly confessed to sexually immoral liaisons with other people. Scores of times. Every single time they got together with this person, what did the person say? I just love Jesus and often would cry. Man, we get into the area where we can say what we want and have no physical nothing. Just, I love Jesus. And you can have Benny Hinn saying it. And if that's true, there's got to be a problem. And so sacraments are physical and divisive. And that's God's intent. You can't hide circumcision, dudes. You either got it or you don't. You can't hide baptism. You can't hide the Lord's Supper. Either you take it or you don't. You can talk about Jesus all you want. Either you come to the table and eat or you don't, right? Baptism. Either you come to the waters of baptism or you don't. Baptism and the Lord's Supper divide. They're intended to divide. This is contrary to every part of our ethos today where we're postmoderns and everything should be together. Everything should be acceptable. Everything should be uh, one hodgepodge of diversity and plurality and unity. And then along come the sacraments. What do they do? They divide. Many of you take the Lord's Supper. I've forbidden you to take the Lord's Supper. You take it anyhow. I know it. I've said to you, you may not take the Lord's Supper if you have made a decision to not be a member of Christ's church and to submit to particular elders. You go ahead and take it. doesn't matter to you. Who's he to tell me what I can and can't do? And now you're wondering, how come I don't come and take it out of your hand? Well, because as elders, we've made a decision that except in cases of the particular discipline of particular people in this church, that is an act of discipline. We take it from them as an act of discipline. We've made a decision that we'll talk to you, but that we're not in the middle of the service going to make a commotion. So we talk to you, and sometimes you still don't do what we tell you to do. And the Bible says what? What does it say? 
it says what? It says, submit to those in authority over you in the Lord, for they keep watch over your souls as women who must give an account. That's a, that's a cheap one. As men who must give an account. And then it tells you to submit to them willingly, cheerfully, nicely, because if you make it a pain for them, that's of no profit to your soul. In other words, it says that submitting to them is profitable for your soul. It's profitable for you. Sacraments do what? Sacraments do what? They divide. Is this an accident of history that God was not aware of? And had he known what would happen today, he would have changed things? No. Sacraments divide. It's what they're intended to do. Now, the word sacrament is not a scriptural word, and neither is Trinity, so let's not get on our high horse about it. But the word sacrament is not in Scripture. The word sacrament is used to pull together two streams from the early church. One stream is the Latin sacramentum, and one stream is the Greek mysterium. All right? And this gets a little bit non-experiential and intellectual. But all of you were given brains, right? And so bear with me. I'm going to get specific a little bit, okay? As if I haven't been. Um, Sacramentum and mysterium, Latin and Greek. Now, what was the origin of sacramentum in the Latin? Sacramentum was principally used in the ancient world to refer to the vow and the oath that a subordinate would take to his commanding officer in the military. That oath of allegiance and submission was referred to as sacramentum. Now, can you apply that to the Lord's Supper and to baptism? An oath of allegiance that we make, that we will submit to our commanding officer. Now, what about mysterium? Mysterium was a word that was used to refer to either doctrinally or practically something whose significance was hidden from the masses, but known to those on the inside. Does this make sense? So you've seen the little fish? That comes from the early church, and that fish symbolized that they belonged to Christ. And so the true streams you have united are sacramentum, the oath of allegiance you take as a part of the military to submit and to be faithful, and mysterion, something that's hidden that has a deeper meaning that escapes most people. Now bring them together and you have the word sacrament. All right? So a sacrament is something that is you proclaiming to God your submission to him as your commanding officer, and its meaning is hidden to most people, but known to those who belong to that commanding officer. Does this make sense? All right? Now, in what way is a sacrament different from the other ordinances of the church? In other words, if there are a number of things that the Bible commands us to do, how, does, how do the sacraments differ from the other things? Now, what are the other things that are ordinances of the church? Well, think, for instance, of preaching. It's an ordinance of the church. It's clear from our text that we're supposed to have preaching, right? Think about prayer. Think about praise. These are ordinances of the church. In what way do the sacraments differ from the other ordinances of the church? Well, the difference is that sacraments have a divisive, visibly divisive function, and the others don't. Does this make sense? They're fleshly. You can't either... You can't... You can't lie about what's going on with the Lord's Supper. Well, you can. I don't know how to say this. Um, the Lord's Supper is visible. It's concrete. It's, it's fleshly. Uh, baptism, it's visible. It's concrete. It's fleshly. Whereas preaching is a meaning exchange. All right? Preaching goes to your brain, and you sitting there doesn't indicate you agree with one thing that I'm saying. 
It just means that for some reason you happen to show up this morning and you're sitting in a pew and you can't help yourself listen to me, although some of you are sleeping and you've managed to not listen to me. Although it might not be willful. (laughs) Okay, so meaning exchange. How often have you tried to have a meaning exchange with your roommate or your wife and found that it was a complete failure? You know, I think often this is the case, right, in marriage. The husband thinks he's been clear. The wife thinks she's been clear. But the messages that come back to each other, well, I hear you saying this, they're completely whacked out, right? And so... When it comes to prayer, when it comes to preaching, when it comes to worship, these are ordinances of the church, but there isn't the visible confirmation, there isn't the visible visible decision, there isn't the concreteness that there is with the bread, the wine, and the water. All right? So you see the two streams, the mystery and the oath, you see that they differ from the ordinances in that They're concrete, they're visible, and they divide, all right? But now, another thing. How does the Holy Spirit work in the sacraments? How does the Holy Spirit work in the sacraments? How does that happen? Let me ask another question. How does the Holy Spirit work in preaching? And here's my answer. You've got me. It is a mystery. It is a complete mystery how the Holy Spirit works in preaching, right? None of us doubt that he does, none of us who are believers, because all of us came to faith through the preaching of the word. And so none of us question that preaching works. None of us question that it works on a level that is beyond earthly. None of us doubt that the Holy Spirit uses preaching. None of us doubt that Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit uses preaching, right? But how it works, we have no idea. And so if we were asked to explain how it works, the way we would do it is we'd say, what? We'd say, the wind blows where it listeth, and you can't tell where it came from, and you can't tell where it's headed, but you know it's happened, right? That's how Jesus talked about the work of the Holy Spirit, right? Okay, now, here's an interesting thing. If we all are agreed that the work of the Holy Spirit in preaching is weird and you can't predict what's going to happen and you can't really explain what did happen, but you know something did, right? That's how we would agree the Holy Spirit works through preaching. That's exactly how the Holy Spirit works through the sacraments. It's exactly the same. Nowhere does the Bible tell us how the Holy Spirit works through sacraments. The Bible does tell us what doesn't happen through the sacraments. The Bible does tell us that Abraham was accounted righteous prior to being circumcised. And so we know that circumcision was not the means whereby God saved Abraham. And so therefore we know that God works prior to baptism, right, right, right? And that if the Holy Spirit has not given the gift of faith to Abraham, that baptism would have been absolutely meaningless. Do we all agree on this? Everybody. And therefore, if the Holy Spirit doesn't work prior to baptism, it's absolutely meaningless. Because the just shall live by faith. And without Faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, you Baptists would like me to stop here. And in the first service, I did. But a thought occurred to me. And so I have to make this point. Because if you're bright, you're now thinking, yeah, so how come he baptizes babies? Right? I mean, you should be thinking that. What's wrong with you nincompoop? You know? You baptize, but you just got done saying faith has to precede the sacrament. I say, yes, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him righteousness. His belief preceded, faith preceded 
And then he was circumcised. But then what did God tell Abraham to do? (laughs) He told him to circumcise his children, his little babies, eight days old. And you go, wait, 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 wrong. They say, that's what God told him. And so you say, well, you can't baptize babies because faith doesn't precede baptism with babies. And I say, well, circumcision. And you say, no, 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 no. No, 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 foul, whistle blows. And I say, okay, let's agree to disagree, all right? I just want you to get a hint of our differences and not think that I've just put myself in a Houdini box at the bottom of the ocean and can't get out. (laughs) Is that fair, Stephen? Can I leave it at that? Would you like to say something right now? You just want a whole sermon, right? (laughs) Well, Stephen was agreeing with everything I said up to the last three minutes. And now I... What? Yeah, yeah, and I understand why you say it doesn't, because Stephen's argument, and David's, and many of you, would be that that's a place, what? Come on, say it. That's a place where there's discontinuity between the covenants. And that's one of the most difficult issues that there is to deal with in the Christian faith is the degree to which there is continuity from the Old Testament to the New Testament, the degree to which there is discontinuity. What is the most glaring example of the discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament? The most glaring example. It is the fact that in the Old Testament, only the men are marked with the sign of the covenant. In the New Testament, men and women are marked with the sign of the covenant. Clear discontinuity. And so what you have between Baptists and Presbyterians, then, is an argument about whether that is discontinuous or continuous, the issue of babies and the mark of the covenant. Now, is that okay? Do you you understand that? I mean, none of us understand it. We think we do. Heaven will show. And, and actually, what I was thinking when I said that is that um, I was not thinking that we're right. Really, I wasn't. I do believe what I believe, but. Um, so now we have the sacraments. We have them reflecting this two streams. I don't know what's going on today with this thing. We have these two streams. We have the oath of allegiance and we have the mysteries, all right? We have sacraments, all right? Now, we agree that without faith is it impossible to please God. And therefore, no sacrament ever does anything other than condemn you without faith. Are we agreed on that? Are we agreed that in 1 Corinthians it shows That when people take the Lord's Supper without discerning the body and blood of our Lord, some have gotten sick and others died because of it. And so, again, the sacraments without faith, without discerning the body and the blood of our Lord, sacraments harm us, condemn us. Sacraments result in some getting sick and others dying. We're all agreed on this, right? Now... Here's the final application. So what about those people who say, you know, the era of the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics, I'm going to run as far and hard from that era as I possibly can. I got the message. The message is sacraments are not things that you can jack God around with. You can't put them in a box and then put them in the water and bring them up. Otherwise, we'd have those super bomber fire, um, forest fire things, and they'd go over nations. And they just super soak everybody. Right? And save everybody. I got the message. And then what do you do? You run the entire way over to the other side, which is you deny that there is any efficacy in the sacraments. You deny that God has been pleased to yoke himself to working through wine, bread, and water. Because you got that message, 
And that's an error you don't want to have anything to do with. Many of you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. You learned that error, and you're running as far as you can to the other side. And then what you do is you deny and you cringe when I talk about sacraments being a sign and seal. Because we all know what a seal is. A seal is something where God acts. And if a sacrament is a seal, that's tying God to act through the sacrament. Can't have that. Can't have that. And so what you do is you go way over here and you say, all the sacraments are is just an ordinance, just a remembrance, just a history lesson. That's all they are. And so I say a sign and seal of the covenant of grace and you get all uptight because, you know, I think Pastor Bailey's turned into a sacramentalist. Listen. Romans 4.11. Can you put it up there? He, Abraham, received the, uh, there it is, sign of circumcision. Uh, there it is. A seal of the righteousness of the faith. Listen, you don't have a biblical faith if you're over here and you say, they're just a remembrance. It's just a history lesson. It's just something that helps me meditate on Christ crucified. Uh-uh. That's not biblical faith. They are a sign and a seal. Now, if I take an envelope and I put inside of it a note, I lick the flap, I put the flap down, and I get a little bit of wax, and I melt it on top of the place where the flap and the back of the envelope come together, and then I take something I've had crafted for me. It has like TBB or something like that. I stamp it in the, in, in the hot wax. What have I done? I've sealed the envelope, right? A sign and seal of you belonging to Christ and Christ belonging to you, right? Right? Okay. And that seal, when you open up the envelope and you find in there a letter from me, that seal has properly pointed to the reality, hasn't it? But what if you were to open the envelope and you were to find nothing from me inside? Or what if you were to read my seal and find that the letter is actually from my son, Taylor? In other words, seals can be abused, can't they? Baptism can be abused. The Lord's Supper can be abused. When the Lord's Supper was abused in the New Testament, what do we read about the consequences of the abuse of the sign and seal of the covenant of grace? What do we read? We read the Apostle Paul writing the church that was abusing them and saying, this, you all know what it says, this is why what? Some of you are sick and others have fallen asleep, have died. In other words, the abuse of sacraments proves the grace of the sacraments. Because what's the sense of having such incredibly scary consequences if nothing is at stake? So if all it is is just a recollection, just a history lesson, we got lots of history lessons. But if God has lowered himself, you remember when Jacob and Laban split and they made a pact of peace. Do you remember what they did? Do you remember? They erected a little tower of stones. Remember that? A pillar. And that pillar did what? You remember in the Old Testament when God said he would never again wipe out the whole earth with a flood. You remember he erected a pillar. What was the pillar? Do you remember when God made a covenant with Abraham? He and Abraham erected a pillar. What was the pillar? You remember in the New Testament where God says that if we come to him through the blood of his son, that he will be our God and that we will be safe now and eternally. What, what was the pillar? The pillar was the rainbow. The pillar... I don't remember. Circumcision. The pillar was Passover. The pillar is baptism. The pillar is the Lord's Supper. Every one of these is God lowering himself 
to take on flesh and to be accountable for fulfilling his part of the contract. Now, one final statement to you. There are many of you who make the mistake of seeing the risk in the sacraments and therefore make the mistake of running from it. Do you understand? You feel that you're not worthy of being baptized, and so you don't get baptized. You feel that you're not worthy of the Lord's Supper, and so you don't come to the Lord's Supper. And that is the wrong lesson. Because as it is dangerous to not come to come to the Lord's Supper unprepared, so it is also dangerous to not come to the Lord's Supper by faith. You're between a rock and a hard place. You're not avoiding the danger by not coming to the Lord's Supper. The point of it isn't to have churches filled with people that don't come to the Lord's Supper. The point of them is to repent. And then by faith come to the Lord's Supper. The point is not for you to think I'm so awful that the blood of Christ can't cover me. And so you never take the Lord's Supper. Who did the Lord give the supper to? He gave it to to sinners. He said, I came not for the righteous, but for sinners. And so it is an act of sin to not come to the Lord's Supper. It's an act of sin on your part not to be baptized. You are to come. Jesus said, come. What I think is going on a lot of times is that we know the difference between repentance and rebellion. And we're so precious with our rebellion that we won't come. We have people who come to church here Sunday after Sunday, year after year, and have never joined the church. Why do they not join the church? Well, because they're convinced they can get everything good that the church has to offer without ever having any fleshly kind of concrete, kind of visible, kind of commitment. (laughs) Kind of like living with a woman. You can get everything you want. Namely one thing. And no commitment. I mean, isn't that what every man is? You know, this bit about taking on responsibility for a wife, providing for her, leading her, sanctifying her, having children by her. Ooh, ooh, ooh. You know? And the same thing is true of the church. Listen, Jesus said, come to him. Jesus told us how. He said, submit to those in authority. Jesus said that we are to take the Lord's Supper. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes again. Jesus said, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is completely about flesh. (laughs) Completely about submission. Completely about marking of signs. And so if you think that you've that you've figured it out, and that what you're going to do is you're going to avoid church membership, you're going to avoid submitting to any particular men, you're going to avoid coming to the Lord's Supper so you don't get sick or die, you're going to avoid being marked by baptism, you're going to avoid everything except coming to church and sitting under the pastor preaching so that you can have spiritual thoughts and feel that, you know, you've done your good deed for the week. (laughs) You've missed the whole point. I'm driving you to be baptized. I'm driving you to come to the table. Because if you won't be baptized and you won't come to the table and you won't vow publicly that I will submit to the elders of Christ's church, not mine, Christ, you don't have faith. Right? And so Jesus Christ, through his death, has prepared a wonderful ollie ollie and free party for you. And you're coming 
to the waters of baptism, you're coming to the Lord's table, and you're coming to the church of Christ and to her officers, is you hearing the Oli Oli in free. And by faith through the blood of Christ, saying, I come. I come. I keep telling you one more thing. One more thing, okay? I'm coming again. You know how Reformed people are so very uptight about ever pressuring anybody into doing anything? No altar calls. We don't believe in altar calls. We're not going to manipulate you. We're going to just simply speak to your brain. USB cable? Scuzzy drive? Firewire? Download? The men know what I'm talking about. Brain to brain. It occurred to me this morning that the sacraments are the church saying yes to calling for a response from you. And in Christ's name, I command you to come to the waters of baptism into the Lord's Supper. And I don't mind using every single tool in my arsenal to do it. I will hug you when you come to worship, and I know that you didn't want to. Those of you who are men, I'll kiss you. I will invite you to my house to have food. I will yell. I will plead. I will cry. I will be there when you're drunk. As a church, we'll do anything we can to get you to come to the Lord. And it's just too bad the Lord's Supper isn't being served today. And if this is manipulation, I'm all for it. Because that's how the Holy Spirit has chosen to work. And I wouldn't be a minister of the gospel if I didn't call you to the flesh of baptism, the flesh of the sacraments, the flesh of Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ, and the flesh of the elders of this church. Let's pray.